Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome author, musician, and screenwriter, James McBride. James is the National Book Award-winning author of The Good Lord Bird and longtime New York Times bestseller, The Color of Water. James's newest book is Deacon King Kong, which is the current selection for Oprah's book club. Hello. Today, we talk about art, history, music, and so much more. If you're looking for ways to amplify the stacks and help me to continue making this podcast, here's what you can do. You can use the link in the show notes to shop for your books. You can subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can use the stacks code with our partners like Libro FM, and you can follow us on social media. If you still want to do more, you can join us on Patreon. It's a monthly subscription that funds the show and gives you perks like our monthly virtual book club. I want to give a little love to some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack. Shayna Austin, Steph Brown, Jorge M, Alyssa Jakunski, Catherine Scrivener, Catherine Aker, Henny Hamilton, Joyce Devrak, Lisa Puhuan-Numura, Jean Krasilnikov, Claire, and Michelle Ryle. Thank you all so much for your continued support of the Stacks. I could not do it without the Stacks Pack. All right, let's get on with the show. Here's my conversation with James McBride. All right, I am here today with James McBride. James, we're so happy you're here today. Thank you for making the time for the Stacks. Well, I'm glad to be here at the Stacks. And um, we'll start where we always start in about 30 seconds or so. Can you tell us about Deacon King Kong? Well, Deacon King Kong is about a deacon from a small Baptist church in Brooklyn who goes out one day, gets lit up with alcohol, and ends up shooting the worst drug dealer in the projects. And the resulting activity is uh, is really where the story is. Yeah, and it's a kind of a crazy, you know, fun romp with lots of different characters, which I definitely want to get to some of the characters later. But I am curious, as someone who's a prolific writer, and you've been a journalist, and you're a musician, and you kind of are just a an artist, if you will, how do these stories come to you? How do you decide what you want to write about? Um, well, you know, you know, I like people, you know, I mean... <laughs> I'm like Barbara Streisand. People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. (laughs) I just like stories. And so I look for them all the time. Um, And um, usually stories that involve some element of humanity or conflict that that push people in in directions that are uncomfortable and amusing to watch or um, informative to learn from are 
that's where I kind of head as a writer. Yeah. And I think you do a great job of bringing out the humanity of different kinds of people in your writing. I think a lot of people would say that's something that you're known for is the way that you can humanize all these different types of people that there's no one that you're not willing to kind of talk about or talk to. I'm curious, historical fiction, why historical fiction? Uh, Because I like it. And because I think there's a lot to be learned from history. And it's nice to translate historical fiction into or it's nice to translate history into something that people can relate to and learn from and understand from so is it a genre that you like to read yourself or i know you i know you're a prolific reader i just recently watched you and jason reynolds talk the other day and you were pulling out all these books so i'm curious i read a lot of history books all the time i very rarely read novels you know although i was just talking about stephen king who i i really admire um but i I generally just read um history books all the time you know because this you know i'm looking to to better inform myself about how people are and what people would or might or can do yeah and then you kind of take that information that you're learning and turn it into a novel or something is that that well sometimes or just sometimes you know you just have to know how to respond to Characters have to move in a world, and they have to move in a place, and you you have to set that place up properly. Otherwise, it just won't work. And in order to do that, you really have to know what's going on in the world. Uh, you know, does the milkman still deliver milk in the year twenty twenty? Probably not, but he certainly did in in you know nineteen fifty five in in you know Dorchester, Massachusetts, probably, or certainly in nineteen forty five. So. Right. You can't, you know, you can't write about a milkman unless, you know, unless you know what a milkman does and where he would be and what year he would be doing it in and so on and so forth. Otherwise, what happens is the story just deteriorates into and then this happened and then that happened and then this happened and then that happened. That's not really how good stories work. Good stories connect. And for people who aren't familiar, you are a, a musician. You are a, a fantastic, you are, teach music at the church that you are at in Brooklyn. And I know a lot of people ask the question of how is music and writing similar and how did those things work together for you? But what I'm actually more curious about is what are the major differences for you? Where do they kind of draw apart and you have to use different parts of your brain and your thinking and your craft? Well, m- music is not quite as free as writing because you know Mm. at least the kind of music i play right because there's you know you're dealing with a 16 bar form or 32 bar form or you're dealing with a form that requires a certain level of expertise and training to execute and you're doing it in a way that people have been doing for a long time and people can do really well now and so what distinguishes your music from the next guy's music is the, the bit the ability of your to place your life force into the music that means mm. that's why when you hear a guy who's 17 year old playing the 17 or 19 playing the trumpet, he just doesn't have the same feel as a guy who was maybe 30 or 40 or 60 or a guy right. who grew up in the 60s and who plays because there's a, there's a life force, a life experience that goes to that. Writing, on the other hand, you know, you're only limited by your imagination and your ability mm. to technically place people in a room and move them from one room to the next. If you if you're really good, you can do that in ways that are you know that are really unique to you, and that don't require the same. Um, you're not bounded by these twelve notes that uh, that at least in Western music that musicians are 
are confined to. And when you're writing, I mean, in Deacon King Kong, there's a, such a rhythm to the writing. There's, you know, there's these like staccato sentences and then these long kind of winding passages. And I'm curious how you find your way into the rhythm of your own writing. If that's something that changes, you know, depending on your mood or if that's like, that's part of the world that you create and how you find that. Well, I don't think about that at all. I just write you the don't. story. I mean, you don't fall in love with your words. You fall in love with your ideas. Whatever sure. words work, then those are the words that work. But if, you know, the long sweeping passages, and I mean, um, you know, Jim Harrison wrote a book. I think one of his books, I think the first paragraph lasted like four pages or something. But Jim Harrison, <laughs> he could pull that off. You know, he, he, was, a, he was a gifted writer. You just, right. whatever's there, I mean, however you can get to the mainland, you know, you have to be good enough in terms of your reporting skills and your research skills to make sure that you have enough information to fire the weapon. But once you have the information and you can fire, you shoot with whatever, if you, you know, if you, you pull the trigger and water comes out, well, that maybe that's what you need to, to hit the mosquito with. You don't need a shotgun to kill a mosquito. You need mosquito right. spray. So you, you load the gun up with that and hit them with that. Or if you miss and he bites you, then you've still got a story. You've got some movement, you have action, you have activity, motion, and so forth. Right. And when you sit down to start writing, or when, when you sat down to kind of get started on actually putting these ideas to paper for Deacon King Kong, at least, how much of what you've, of, is in this published book, how much of that is where you started? How much of the story is what you intended to write? And how much of it kind of changed throughout your process? A lot of it changed throughout the process because the characters begin to carry the story. They pick it up and they just start lifting it along. Um, you know, you have four or five main characters that you, you want to deal with and, and, you know, you try to push in on them at the top and then let them roll out into ancillary characters. And then at, at a certain point, plot begins to pick up the whole... It's just like an ant who carries a piece of coffee cake, you know, to the... You know, at some point, he or she or whatever they call themselves... They just pick the whole crumb up and carry it like a boulder to, you know, to the mother bee or mother ant. And so, um, you know, you, you try to just create characters that will connect. And if they connect properly, then you don't have to create anymore. You're just following. Is there ever a conflict between you and the ideas that you have as the as the author kind of going into the work versus the you that's actually writing and dealing with the characters? Like, do you ever get in your own way sometimes? Like, you have an idea that you think is really great, but then you try to write it and your characters are like, this is not working for me. That happens all the time. That happens every day. I mean, you know, I'm, look, I, I, I can't get out of my way to go to the bathroom, right? I mean, I'm just fumbling <laughs> along. You know, we don't know... You know, you just rise up to whatever the character is and you try to meet them in midair and do your little ballet dance. And then when you're done, when they vanish, when they shoot off, you you know, you go, you, you settle down and you say, well, that was the ultra extra experience. Or you say that was just, you know, that wasn't so good. But you have to surrender yourself to the story and to the idea and to the inner idea, which is, Usually, in my cases, you know, the humanity of people and how ridiculous people are when it comes to labeling themselves or their work or what they do and, you know, all those stuff. Do you feel pressure to write something that is going to be successful because you've had so much success? And if you do, what does it mean? To, like, what does success mean to you? Well, um, 
No, I don't feel success. I don't feel the pressure to write something successful because I really, I feel lucky now. I mean, look, if, if it stopped for me right now and I just vanished into obscurity, I mean, what do I have to complain about? You know? Hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't I, look. I don't read reviews, and I don't follow. You know, I don't follow the. I don't care what anybody else does. I'm happy hmm. for someone else if they become successful and and um you know this so it's su- such a tough business that and writers are so unappreciated that you know I, I often find myself wondering how i got th- to this level i mean you look at someone like i don't know i'm gonna think of 10 people rachel kushner just uh, so many really talented writers who don't get enough attention i just happen to be i just happen to be in the room when god coughed and i was the one that had a handkerchief really hmm. i mean i didn't write books to be successful i wrote them to make money and live and uh right. it just so happened that you know i came along at a time when a writer like me could make a living at it i mean if i had been born 10 years before or 20 years before i, I was born i'm sure that i would not be enjoyed this level of success i was just talking yesterday about john a williams who wrote the man who cried i am i mean he was as good as any writer out there and he never became really that famous, but you know, writers know who he is. Um, mm. uh, and there are people, tons of people who, you know, Henry Roth, who wrote Call It Sleep, was a wonderful book. I mean, there's just so many writers that I just got lucky. I mean, I just, I don't know. Um, I'm not going to apologize for being successful, but it's awfully nice. Yeah. Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, um, you, you know, you you try to you try to spread the love a little bit and and uh, and just be grateful for what what has happened, you know what, what has happened for you, you know. Right, and that's a lot of you know outside people telling you that they appreciate your work. But how about you when you finish a book? How do you reckon with what you think of your work? How do you know when you're done? You know, I look once I write something, I never want to read it again. <laughs> I have no interest in it at all. I have no interest in looking at it or talking about it. Or thinking about it, I've I've enjoyed these characters so much. I'm so happy that they gave me some peace in the times that we were working together and living together. But once the book is done, I have no interest in it. I I never talk about characters with other writers, and you know my characters. Did my character ate an apple and it got stuck in her throat? Wow! Oh my, he had some catnip <laughs> and he swallowed it. I mean, I don't I don't care. I'm I'm so busy <laughs> trying to keep. Um, what happens is when you're an artist, whatever kind of art you do, there's a fire burning in your soul. How you quench that fire and keep it from destroying you is, is the, that's called art. Mm. And that's really what you do to, you know, to keep yourself right. That's all it is. You know, you, you can't focus on anything else other than that. If you go outside of that, then you're, you're, you're moving out of your comfort zone. Is there anything that you've ever written that you feel particularly proud about having written? Well, I mean, you know, I'm not ashamed of it. I mean, I've written some bad stuff. I mean, I, I like all of it. <laughs> I, I just mean, mean, like, is there anything that you think, like, for, for me, sometimes with this podcast, I'll make an episode and I'll be like, wow, that's exactly like what I set out to do. I feel like that really fulfilled what my hope was for that, for that conversation. And then sometimes I, I don't ever think about the episode ever again. So I'm just curious if there's any things that you've written that you feel like, wow, that really fulfilled what I had hoped it would be for me personally. No, no. I no. mean, I, I thought after I wrote the color of water that, uh, 
that I would always be seen as this, uh, you know, mixed race guy writing about race and, you know, woe is me. You know, should I eat chicken or should I eat matzo ball? What should I do? You know, <laughs> and I always felt that that was just an unfair characterization of who I was as a human being. So when I became successful as a fiction writer, there was great satisfaction in that because for a, a, a writer like me, particularly an African-American writer, you're always battling this whole business of I'm the gorilla in the window. I lived a terrible life. You know, there were junkies everywhere. My mama did, my daddy, but, 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 you know, it's just the whole right. psychosis of this negative stereotype of black life. But I made it, and thus I'm cool. And that's really, really been toxic for the creative element uh, for many, many black writers. I mean, if look, if I'm driving to L.A. and I have to get in the car and drive to L.A. from New York, well, you know, you'd say, what kind of car are you driving? And I'd say, oh, well, it's a you know, station wagon. What year is it? It's, a, it's a 2015. How many miles is it? It's got about 50,000 miles. And we had to check. That's good. Brakes are good. Tires. Okay, cool. Then it's about the drive. So race is the car, but the drive is the drive. Now, which one do you want to deal with? Do you want to deal with the car or do you want to deal with the drive? Personally, I prefer to deal with the drive rationally and in real life in america you're always dealing with the car when you're black that's yeah. just how it is so now you have to decide whether you as a person as an artist are going to deal with the car or the drive i'm always interested in the drive i'm not interested in the car i know who i am and if you right. do that you'll be all right no matter what your race sex gender sexual preference whatever Right. I also have a white Jewish mother and a black father, though my mom did not convert to Christianity. So reading your book was definitely like, huh, this this feels like so familiar in so many ways and obviously so different. But um, it's interesting because even if you focus on the drive as the artist, doesn't matter necessarily because you can't control how other people perceive your work or see your work or deal or, or interact with your work. And I think uh, for me, as someone who has been an artist and creator, that's always been really challenging. I wonder if that has also been something that's challenging for you or if you just are really able to just focus on the drive and say, Do you, can, you can talk about the car all you want. That's about it. I mean, I don't care what people – I mean, I, I'm, I, I like – look, be happy. What difference yeah. does it make? I mean, it's real simple. I mean, people can say what they want to say. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean – I don't know what to say. I look. I when my mother had her kids, she was way out. <laughs> she was considered way, way out, and she never felt unhappy. She was a happy person. She never it never bothered her when people would call her nigger lover and all. She didn't care. She it, it went right over her head. It wasn't mm. like there was a politically correct thing. She didn't care. She just dealt with what what made her happy, and and you know being married to my father, my stepfather, having all these kids. and She she was a, a poor woman who was very happy. So what would you rather do? Rather be happy or, you know, know all these little facts and little niblets of nonsense that really are just a waste of time and make yourself unhappy with. If someone wants to do that, it's not hurting me. Right. Um, if they want to hurt themselves with that, then go right ahead. Just make sure you vote. I don't care what, I don't want to hear this, this other stuff, man. I'm not interested in that. Vote. And, you know, make the world better. Stop, you know, that stuff, some of that stuff is just details. When you die, nobody's going to say, oh, you know, 
tell me the story of the Jewish people. No, you're going to be wor- hoping your lungs can wheeze, you know. Are the black people here? You're not going to be worried about that. And people are mm. dropping dead from COVID right now. And, you know, we got a president who's running around like a moron. I mean, that's that to me is a pretty big story. Yeah. A, that story is bigger than race. Yes. Again, that's the car and driver story. Okay. Yeah. You know, you can focus on the fact that the guy is a known, that New York, you know, lovely liberal New York created like the great racist president. Or the right. fact that we knew he was there all the time. Or you can focus on the fact, what do we need to do to improve? And right. I'm very proud of these young people who are saying, you know, we don't even have that frame of reference. And we're out here kicking it hard. And, we, we know, Black Lives Matter. It doesn't matter whether I'm white or not. I, this is how I feel. And that's, right. that's, that's, like a, that's like someone dropping rain on the desert. You know, for those of us who are old enough to remember that this whole thing of cops shooting black and poor people and Latino people is as old as, as I am and older. So, yeah, you know, change is good. It's coming. Yeah. Gosh. No, that's, I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's really beautiful. I mean, I'm moved by that. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy 
price, price line. This is a total shift. We're going to shift back to the book, though. We may come back to this topic, but I have to know how you name your characters. I know you get this question all the time, but there are so many great names in Deacon King Kong. Obviously, there's Deacon King Kong, there's Deems, there's Elefante. Like, there's just so many really fun characters. So how does that come to you? Oh, I don't know. It's just they're, they're characters from some of them I knew. There was a real hot sausage I knew as a kid. You know? <laughs> some of the just names that just pop up. You know, I carry a little notebook with me everywhere. I write down things I hear. You know, names are often in objects, you know. In all of America, particularly in communities where people are have to live closer together, that would be lower income people or so-called poor people. There's a plethora of really really good names now in the old days when i say the old days 50s 60s 70s the names were a little bit better nowadays the nicknames to me are not as good i mean I, there's nothing mm-hmm. that you know like the name traquan doesn't really to me sound like a great name it sounds like a name somebody made up but mm-hmm. you know now traquan has a certain ring now because of what happened in florida so it's different but there are some names like i used to know a kid named i'm unique now, why would you name a kid I'm unique, really? I mean, this guy's going to go, when he's 35, he's going to go for a job interview. He's going to say, <laughs> I'm, excuse me, I'm, I'm unique. I'm unique, Johnson. Yeah. I, I don't think that there's a real, there's no real magic in a name like that. I think in the old days, at least to my recollection, and I'm probably wrong, it just seemed people had really better nicknames. And, and so yeah. I just look yeah. at those, you know. I mean, let me ask you something. Is Beyonce a real name? I mean, would you name your daughter Beyonce? I wouldn't. <laughs> but well, I look. Let me just let me just clarify. I might not name my child Beyonce, but if she was Beyonce, I'd be quite happy. I mean, uh, please. I mean, <laughs> could you imagine being disappointed kind of in Beyonce? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. I don't know. I mean, uh, a name is just a label in a book. That's all. It's yeah, just a label. When you come up with the names, because they're so, I mean, especially in this book, they're like so evocative and exciting. Do you, I know for some authors, they put a placeholder name in and then eventually they go back and change it. For you, do you create your characters with their names or do their names kind of change throughout the book ever? No, I create the character and the name evolves. Sometimes I have to change the name, but usually once I get the name, the last name will change sometimes. Yeah, but usually the first name stays. How about when you're writing? Where where do you write? How do you write? Do you have music on? Do you have snacks or beverages? Like, what's your setup like for your writing life? Oh, I just get to it. I mean, ain't no music, snacks, and all that. Snack later. I get up at four. (laughs) I hit it. You know, I go until you know. Well, you know, I get up at four and I allegedly exercise, but I don't really. I mean, it's just do a few twists and bends and then. I lay on the floor and look at my cat while I'm supposed to be doing sit-ups. And then I get moving, and then I, I work until usually about 10. Then I take a little nap of poo. Take a little nap of poo for about 20. Then I get up and hit it again. By 11, I'm 11, 12 o'clock. It's over. But I do it pretty consistently, you know. And I don't, have, I don't sit by a window looking out over the sea and all that. I mean, I can write anywhere. You know? mm-hmm. I can write on a bus. I can. I mean, I. You know, these self-driving cars are great because I'm going to get one one day, just so that when I have a note in my mind, I can just take my hands off the steering wheel and just write them, mm. write the write the ideas down. Because I oftentimes have ideas, a lot of times when I drive, and I can't 
uh, write them down right. I just, you know, you can't do it. You got to hang on to the wheel. But I'm not a big texter and all that, you know, the internet and all that. I don't, I don't do that too much. So I don't distract myself. So I'm not. It's not hard for me to get to work. I'm so used to it, you know. Yeah. Do you remember what sort of stuff you were reading or listening to or watching or whatever when you were writing Deacon King Kong? What sort of stuff was kind of in your psyche? You know, I, I really don't. I don't even know how I started writing the book. Honest, honestly, I don't even remember how. I don't even remember. Like, I, I mean, I can tell you why in a general way, general way why I wrote it, but I really don't even remember like how... It just started. It was just, you know, I wrote the first graph maybe 40 times. <laughs> and once it was, like, right, I just, I said, I can I can move in. And then the rest of the story just began to show itself. You know, I, I take the spiritual approach to it and, and also the, the practical approach. The practical approach is that if I can't read it, if, I don't, if I'm not interested in reading, it ain't no good. Hmm. And um, if I have to push myself to read it or say, oh, the reader will get it, you know, if they can just get to page 12 and forget it. Hmm. I have to be, you know, I have to really be engaged right away, personally myself. Otherwise, if I'm not in- engaged with the character, I don't think the reader. I go with character, not story. Right. Stories come and go. Characters are the magic. Right. That's the practical. What's the spiritual? Well, the spiritual is you just give it to God and just ask him to help you, you know, Get through it so that you you be yourself at the end of it because it takes a little piece out of you, and um, you know you don't want you don't want to give everything away. You know you want to save a little bit for yourself. Right. I'm super curious. You were part of the Rock Bottom Remainders, which is a music group of writers, other writers. There's a bunch of you kind of who played together, and I'm curious what it's like as someone who is a musician professionally also to play music with a bunch of authors. Is it a different process? Do people approach it different? Oh, my God. I mean, well, look, they're all my friends. And so I don't want to say bad things about my friends. And my general, <laughs> my general attitude about all this stuff is you, if you can't say something about someone when they're in the same room, you ought not say it. So, you know, if I were ever to meet Beyonce, I'm going to have to explain. Like, why did you say, you know, because <laughs> I just I wouldn't give my I just want to go back to that for a minute. I think there's a fascination with the French culture that exists in our country that is like, having lived in France, I can tell you that they ain't really so cool as we think they are. Mm. That's the first part of it. But the second part of it, playing with the rock bottom remains as well. I mean, they can't, they, they really can't play too good, but they're good people, you know? Sure. I mean, but yeah, I mean, they, I call that the reverb band because they're always screaming for more reverb, you know, get, like, <laughs> that's going to help, you know? That's like polishing... <laughs> You know, look. If you're polishing dung, it's still dung. You know, yeah. I mean? if it's a if it's mule dung, if you put you know shellac on it, it's still gonna look pretty bad. So that's cool. reverb for the rock bottom remains. But they're a really fun band, um, and they got a couple ringers in there who are really musicians too: the drummer and the, the sax player, uh, the other sax player. And they they play you know the professional players. So they and some of them can like they can really they can really a few of them can really play. I mean, but um, you know it's not you're gonna catch you're not gonna catch them playing like uh, you know Sonny Rollins music or John <laughs> Coltrane or you know or Bach, you know right <laughs> Bach <laughs> right. Uh, 
Is there anyone that you can remember that inspired you to want to write? Um, William Savoyne wrote a book called The Human Comedy. I loved it. And Kurt Vonnegut, when I was a kid, I loved his work. And um, Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man. Uh, but those were the big ones, you know, I think. Oh, and uh, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. That was, a, mm. I always felt, I still feel that Harper Lee was just so good. I mean, I know some people have some politically correct views about that book and all. I mean, I don't even know how to engage. Honestly, I, I really don't. I mean, when when someone does the best they can, then the best thing you can do is say, you know, all you can do is say thank you. We have we have forgotten how to forgive each other, and we've forgotten how to give people room to say, I made a mistake, you know. Um, and until we do that, we're not going to really improve. Yeah, the, giving people the grace and the space. When you were younger, I, oftentimes I've asked this question about if how, what made someone want to be a writer, who made someone want to be a writer. And a lot of the times I get, I hear back that, People didn't even know it was a job you could have when they were younger. Do you kn remember if you knew that it was something that you wanted to do from a young age and you knew it was a possibility for a job? I had no idea about that. Um, my, uh, my aim was after college to, was to be a journalist because I saw, I got involved in the Nelson, Nelson Mandela apartheid movement. You know, We're mm. going back to 1979. Now, this is when nobody in America knew who Nelson Mandela was. Very few people. And, uh, in fact, there was a reporter at the Village Voice, which was the newspaper back then. Uh, I think it was Wayne Barrett. It might have been Thelani Davis, but it was one of those really, really good reporters, writer reporters or writers there. And they had their phone number unlisted because in those days, if you were, you've had a phone, there were no cell phones. If someone wanted to find you, they could call up an operator and say, you know, what's such and such's number? And the operator would give you that number. But if you didn't want anyone to find you, you could give them any number. You can give them any name, and you could have your phone listed under that name. And this writer had, I, it was a man, he had his name listed under Nelson Mandela. That's how little people knew of who Nelson Mandela hmm. was. But I was wow. at Oberlin, and Oberlin, you know, we all knew who Nelson Mandela was, and I got interested in journalism because of that, and then I ended up going to Columbia University to go to graduate school for journalism, and then... That led to being a, a reporter for nine years. You know, I worked for the Wellington News Journal, the Boston Globe, People Magazine, the Washington Post. And then after I left the Washington Post, I was a musician for nine years. And I started to write my first book during that time. Would you ever go back to being a journalist? No. Mm -mm. No, I teach. You know, I teach a class at NYU Journalism That's School. my alma mater. I oh, went to NYU. Right? Wow. Go Violets. All right, can you sing the Violet song? I can sing it. Here we are, the Violets are here. And no, that's not the that's not the NYU theme song. I don't, I don't think I would know the NYU theme song if you sang it to me right it. now. I would have no idea. Look, most people don't even know the NYU uh, uh, mascot. Well, so when I was there, I think it still is. Now they're the Bobcats. Yeah, but what about the Violets? So they were the Violets, and then they changed the name to be the Bobcats. And I found out when I was there that the Bobcat mascot, do you know where it comes from? No, the system of the library at oh, NYU yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, is yeah. the Bobcat, and it's so right. the the library catalog system or whatever is how the new name came from. But I think the Vi I don't know why they got rid of the Violets. Well, look, it's not like NYU is going to be 
you know, like right. look at the SEC, whatever that no. is. No. I, I don't even know what it is. I know people talk about it with, with their hats cocked sideways and their shorts beneath their ankles. They go, yeah, with the SEC. I don't even know what the <laughs> SEC is, but you won't find NYU in it. That's for sure. Whatever no. it is, they ain't going to be doing football in the SEC. I don't, we don't even have a football team at NYU. No, but uh, no, but we college football and all that in New York is not really popular. Doesn't exist. Yeah, no. I that was one of the trade offs of going to theater school was to saying, okay, I guess I'm unless I go to Michigan, I'm not really going to get that college experience. Well, let me ask you something. Now we haven't had college football all year, whatever, however long you know, however long we've been in this major pandemic, we haven't had any sports. And you know yeah. what? I feel I feel fine. Is I'm not missing any of it. I don't miss any of these talking heads, these jive talking, you know, Charles Barkley. I, what? That, I don't miss any of these people. I, don't, I mean, think about it. I, and I used to listen to the radio, the NBA stuff all the time. And at a certain point, as the politics of our era be, you know, began to delve into fascist, the straight out fascist behavior, sports became irrelevant. Yeah. And, um, other than you know the quarterback from the, the San Francisco quarterback who um, Colin Kaepernick and a couple other people like LeBron James, I don't I don't care about any of it because it's it's so irrelevant. You know, people are dying and getting shot for nothing, and you know, kids are going. We have a military industrial complex. You know, you get followed yeah. by the cops now. You're just so. You, I think I don't know who's scared of me or the cops. You go down the road, you don't know who's more afraid, them or you. And uh, so this is, uh, you know, it's not a good scene. So it doesn't seem like sports is really that relevant. I miss having, I miss sports. Like I miss having the distraction to my day sometimes, you know, like I miss being able to turn on a game and watch something, but I don't miss all, I don't miss the talking heads. I don't miss all the content that's generated from sports, but I definitely miss being able to just watch something and the competition. But I do think to your point that, without sports a lot of people are paying attention to a lot of other things a lot of people are reading things that they would never have picked up or or paying attention to art in a different way so for that i'm very grateful as someone who has obviously a passion for reading and the arts but i personally i do i i miss the nba playoffs or you know like <laughs> i definitely miss the sport the actual games well, I mean, maybe you're on the West Coast. So that's right. I am. So, you know, y'all got time out there. We don't have no time here <laughs> in, you know, on the East Coast of New York or whatever. You know, we're trying to get on the subway, and they stopped it running now and late. And, you know. Look, it, it, it's, it's anytime you're trying to help someone, it doesn't matter what your job is. And the, the problem is that in this country, you know, we don't really pay attention. Any, we have no respect for art or artists. Right. None whatsoever. None. So if a guy can yeah. shoot a bit, I used to work with a guy named Ed Shockley. He was six feet eight. He was from Philly. He got a he got a scholarship to go to Columbia to play basketball, and he quit Columbia to write poetry, mm. and that was unheard of thirty years ago. And now he's one of the best playwrights in the country because he just followed his own star. Just because you're black doesn't mean you have to play basketball, and just because you're white doesn't mean you have to become a poet or an you know, architect or work on Wall Street. These labels right. that we put on each other are confine us to thinking about each other in a certain way. And we don't, and art, especially books, but painting, also painting and music, these are things that allow us, to release us to different parts of the world, different parts of the galaxy. And when we sublimate those things and give them labels so that they can be sold for, by the commercial industrial giants, 
we are shortchanging ourselves, and that's part of our problem because our kids don't know history. They don't know music. They don't know art. Most black people don't even know who Sonny Rollins is. Hmm. And, most, and most white people have no idea who Oliver Nelson is. And most black people have no idea who Mozart is or who Virgil Thompson are, is. And, 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 you know, when you don't know who these people are, you shortchange yourself. I mean, everyone should know who Chucho Valdez is. Everyone who should know should know who Tito Puentes is. Hmm. Because these people made this country great. You talk about make America great. Well, that's history. You know, these right. people who did historically great things, they're the ones we should be paying attention to. I have tremendous respect for the NBA players. Mm. I used to cover, you know, I covered it for a brief period of time. Wonderful. These guys are the most gifted, gifted athletes in the world. But if they would speak up and be like LeBron James, I've had a lot more respect for them because a lot of them are just, they just, they just want to make the money. They don't really care. So I don't feel sorry for a millionaire who doesn't give back to his community. I'm not interested yeah. in, in his, his life or his team. I'm only interested in people who want to help people. And I don't care what color they are. I don't care what, what sport they play or what instrument they play or what art they choose. Yeah. I think something that's interesting that you said, you said now is about not knowing history. I think that, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in my mind, I feel like that's sort of by design. We're not taught the history of America or we're not taught history in a, in a truthful way that includes all these different stories from people of all sorts of different backgrounds and history and, and including the art of, of these movements and including the artists who are such an integral part of our history. And I think my feeling about it is that it's because if we ever knew the power of the resistance and the power of art in those movements, it would be too revolutionary. It would, it would shake the foundation of this country in a way that the people in power just aren't interested in. Um, and I think that your writing is so connected to your love of history. And I think that that's what makes your books really powerful for people, even if you're even if you don't set out to write a book that's going to shake the foundation of America, your passion for history and artistry combined in a book makes your books makes people feel things when they read your books. And I think that that's really a special skill that you have. Well, well, thank you for saying that. I mean, um, just write me a check while you're talking. I love, <laughs> love to hear this. No, look, you know, when um, the New York that's reflected in Deacon King Kong is the New York that I knew. It wasn't right. the New York I saw in the newspaper. But and it's important to remember this, that if you read Pete Hamill, who was a white writer, who was, is probably the most in my opinion, a, a literary giant who never got the credit he deserves. Pete Hamill was a columnist, an Irish-American columnist in New York for years, and he worked, he's done, he's written several books. You'll find that his New York is not different from the New York I knew. Sure. So it's, a lot of this has to do with perspective. I don't really think people are as afraid of history as they, they might, as you and I might think. I think the problem is that we ha they haven't been challenged by history because mm. they've been fed, you know, the mythology that allows the few to govern the many. And that mythology is falling apart now. Yeah. And so we have to remake ourselves in the way that the shapers of this country wanted us to do and to be. And we're actually doing it, despite the fact that the, the powerful interests have thrown everything but the kitchen sink and the kitchen sink against mm. that idea. So we're making progress. It's happening. We can't see it cleanly, but but I feel it. Yeah. 
I'm interested to see what this time will be written about in 20 years or 30 years or what how people will reflect back on 2020, the the first half of 2020. Who knows what the second half even has in store for all of us? I'm glad to live long enough to see what has happened now. And, and, you know, it's a privilege to to be able to earn a living as a writer now at a time when, you know, so many people are struggling and can't even make make their rent or their car payment or. Right. Yeah. This is sort of a silly question, but it's one of my favorites. What is a word that you can never spell correctly on the first try? Interrupt. Ooh, good one. I can't spell interrupt. There's several words that I have trouble with like that. And as I, as I get older, the, the, the list grows longer. Oh, no. I was hoping you were going to tell me it would get shorter because I'm a terrible speller as is. <laughs> I don't know if I can add to my well, list. <laughs> you know, you grew up at a time when spell check is, you know, part of the game. Yeah. And I, I don't fall to that, you know. I, I just can't even... But that's one word that I, I have a hard time with. Okay. Before we get out of here, you mean, I mean, this is really the question that I've been pretending not to want to ask, but I have to ask Oprah, what is it like to be picked by Oprah? Like, what is, is it even, are you even like, oh my God, it's Oprah? Or are you just like, cool, thanks? No, no, I was <laughs> blown away. My sister saw me on TV when they interviewed me and she said, she said, you were smiling so much. You look like a moron. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love siblings. <laughs> she said, you look like a moron. <laughs> but uh, it was great. You know, she called me up. I didn't, you know, I mean, I didn't know how it worked. You know, and I don't pick up my phone. I'm not that good about, you know, that. And the, and the publisher kept saying, you know, listen, there's a call coming to Oprah's Magazine. They need to fix something. They, they kind of hooked me up. They kind of tricked me into picking up my phone that evening. Mm. I picked it up. And someone said, James, I said, yes. And she said, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I recognize her voice. I knew mm. she has like, like, that warm voice. So I just, um, you know, I was silent for like 10 seconds. And then, you know, I, <laughs> I don't remember what I said. I tried to be cool. You know, I was really, really flattered that she called me. And I didn't really understand that she was calling me to to talk about the, the Oprah uh, book club. But I it, look... This is a really wonderful thing, and I, I wish it. I wish it would happen for every, every writer, every deserving writer. And there's so many other deserving ones. Um, and uh, you know, I just some sometimes you just happen to draw. Look, I've drawn enough short straws and had enough bad luck in my life to just be happy for this, this piece of good fortune. And and I I look at it like this. I mean, it doesn't mean anything if you don't help somebody. I used to know a guy, one of my first newspaper stories was about a guy named George Inky Wilson. He lived in Newark, Delaware. And uh, I was my, that was my first reporting assignment. And George Wilson was, he was an amazing man because he was a black guy. He was a demolition contractor. And what he would do when he tore down houses, he would build houses up in the black community with the, with the, with the bricks and the toilets and the tanks and the heaters and everything and he built up the black side of newark delaware mm. and george wilson said something to me that i'll never forget because he 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 never had hatred toward anybody he simply said what's the fun of having something if you can't share it with somebody so what's the fun of having all that i have if i can't share it with somebody so mm. whatever talents and gifts god has, has given me and whatever advantages I enjoy now. I try very hard to, to share them with somebody because that's really what you're supposed to do. Yeah. 
That's such a beautiful note. I think we'll we'll end on that. Everyone at home, James McBride, James McBride's newest book is called Deacon King Kong. It is the Oprah Book Club pick right now. So make sure you go out and get your copy. Um, I mean, if you've already read it, good, because it's been out for a little bit. So if you've already read it, great. Go pick up one of James's other books. He's got so many and such beautiful writing. Um, James, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for, for, for having me. It's a, been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to James for being our guest. A special thank you to Ashley Garland over at Riverhead for setting this all up. Remember, the Stacks book club pick for July is Breathe by Imani Perry. Kiese Lehman will be back on July 29th to help us discuss that title. Find everything we talked about on today's episode in the link in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and support the show, head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcast. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please, please, please rate and review this show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirages. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.